Hey guys, how's everybody doing? Welcome to another Bass Lessons Melbourne Player Profile podcast episode. This is number 37 and it features the amazing Steve Hunter I'm from Sydney. My name is Craig and um, thanks for listening to the show. I just want to give a quick shout out to the awesome sponsors of the show, which are F-Bass, who have been hand-making uh, guitars and basses for 40 years and um, offer vintage-inspired instruments as well as original, modern, fretted and fretless designs. You can find them at www.fbass.com and also um, Bass Face Strings, which can be found at www.bassinyourface.com.au and um, that's run by David Gillia and he's bringing in the amazing Ken Smith strings which I've been using for a few months now and really really enjoy so thanks to you guys for supporting the show I really appreciate it um, so getting on to our guest today Steve Hunter um, is a, kind of a legend in the in the Australian music scene and and around the world he's played with um, Chick Corea and Billy Cobham and Rene Gear, but he's one of those musicians that has really just forced his own path. Um, it's one of the one of the lasting impressions I got from from talking with Steve was that he had this vision for the music that he wanted to be involved in and, and the music he wanted to play, and um, and he just piled all his efforts in, into making that happen. And he's been very successful at it. He's got a, a string of solo albums. Um, he's a prolific composer, um, as well as a, a, a pretty amazing bass player. So, um, in this interview, we're going to be chatting a little bit about his influences and how he got started. Um, and Steve also gets into some some concepts about um, developing some some scalar ideas for soloing and stuff. Um, how he's kind of dealing with uh, the music industry as it is today. Um, some teaching concepts and stuff so yeah we, we cover a lot of ground um it was really great to hang out with steve at his home in sydney uh this one was kind of a little bit off the cuff so i apologize that the audio isn't up to the normal standards but um it was too good not to uh it's too good an opportunity to miss and I, I wanted to bring steve's story to you so um like i say this one was just kind of recorded on the phone and, and the GoPro, if you if you want to check out the video, it's on my YouTube channel. Just search for Bass Lessons Melbourne on YouTube, and um, you'll find all the player profile videos on there. So yeah, sorry for the for the audio quality, but hopefully um, you get used to it and you can still enjoy the interview. So without any further ado, here is episode number thirty-seven, Steve Hunter. Lessons Melbourne and um, for this episode of the player profile videos 
I'm actually in Sydney with one other Mr. Steve Hunter. Morning, afternoon. Yeah, how are you? I'm good. Good, it's a bit warm. Yeah, it is. Yeah, huge. We spent pretty much all week up here just sweating. Yeah. Either in the beach. Yeah, no, <laughs> right, I know the feeling. Yeah, it's tough. Um, thanks for having me around. Pleasure. Um, thanks for having to get in touch with lots of people when I started doing this podcast and the video stuff, lots of people, your name came up. Mm. Yeah, if you ever get up to Sydney, you gotta try and catch up with Steve. So um, it's good to be here. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit just about how you kind of, you know, your bit of your base journey, how you became. Yeah. Um, sure. I, I uh, emigrated to Australia from England when I was 14. So that was in uh, 1974. Okay. I'm 57 now. And um, really shortly after that, well, the first kid that I sort of made friends with had a bass guitar in his house. Yeah. And um, and I picked it up one day, and I hadn't picked up one before, and I could kind of kind of play it. Where it felt really, it felt really good in my hands, you know. Yeah. And the kid that I would made friends with, the new Australian kid, said, "Oh, had you played before?" And I said, "No, I never had." So I, the moment wasn't sort of lost on me, you know. I yeah, thought, yeah. This feels good. And I went and. Got one from a hop shop. Yeah. So that was the start. And were you into music? Yeah, I was. I, I was. Always, I was always into music. Both my parents play a lot of music. Yeah. Around the house, um, my mum played piano. My uncles played guitars and basses and things. So it was around. But I'd only much around on a piano really until yeah. picking up the bass here in Australia at so ten, fourteen, mid seventies. What was mid seventies? Well, I came out of England, and I was actually really into into sort of pre Marley reggae and soul music actually at that right. time. And then I got to Australia, and none of the kids my age went to that. It was sort of Led Zeppelin and, and Pink Floyd and all that kind of easy. Yeah, although I didn't really, I was never drawn to that. Yeah, but I, but I got into some of that English music, um, which I hadn't got to into <laughs> when I was in England, you know. And then, um, then I went to see Jeff Beck in 1976 with the Young Hammer Group, and um, that just blew me away, and it sort of set a direction. Yeah, right. And then I got into sort of Mahavishnu and Weather Report and Miles and McLaughlin and etc. After that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, but Jeff Beck was kind of the gateway drug. He was the gateway. Yeah. Who was playing bass with him? It was Fernando Saunders. Okay. And he played a fretless. He had a beautiful time actually. Like he. He had a P bass um, with, a, with a, I guess, with a J pickup in it, but it just had this different sound. It was a different sound to Jacko's sound, you know. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful sound. So he was kind of, yeah, he was the first bass player that I saw. Like, wow, I want to do that. Yeah. And so, what was the what was your first bass that you got? Do you remember? Yeah, it was an Ibanez Silver Series. Silver Series. It was called the Ibanez Silver Series. Oh, is that like the? I believe it maybe later. I might be wrong here. But I think maybe it became the, what they called the lawsuit by yeah, the yeah. or something because it was very, very, very close to the Fender. Was it a jazz? Yeah. 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 But you don't still have it? No. <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah. I kind of like to because I think it was a pretty good accent. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've, got, um, I've got a 70s, uh, it's not Tokai. Yeah. Um, it's got a Greco. Right, B bass is it? Mm. Is it great? Cool. Same mm. kind of era, like the seventies. Mm. It's good. Yeah, they were making good. Yeah, they made some beautiful instruments. The top on jazz was good. Yeah. But, um, so then, I, yeah, I stayed on Fenders then till 1987, uh, and I went six string for six years. Six. I had Tobias and a Federa, so I had some amazing instruments. Right. Did I see a picture of you with a Ken Smith? 
No, no. that would have been a Federa. Yeah, there's, there's a few shots. There's not so many around with the Tobias, but there's quite there's a few photos around playing the Federa. Wow. And then I went back to a five string with a high C for four years. Okay. And then back to a four string in 1998. Interesting. So that's been 20 years back on a Fender, a Fender inspired bass. Sure. Not necessarily a Fender, but yeah. So you, so going from the four to six Federa. Yeah. What was why was that Anthony Jackson? It was it was partly Anthony. It was partly Patrucci had just arrived. Yeah. Um, and there were elements of what he was doing that were that I really liked, and Anthony of course, mm. and um, also just to try to move away from. I'd spent a lot of time concentrating on Jacko and Alfonso, you know, and a couple of guys, and I wanted to move from that mm. a little bit, you know, and I thought maybe six string would be a a new sort of as you say, gateway into something else, into a different thing, you yeah. Know? And then, and I dug it, but uh, I found that I didn't really, uh, I, I couldn't ultimately get with the B string. Okay. I found that I couldn't imbue it with my own sound, it just sounded like B. And some people can, but I, I just found that I couldn't. So it really just became a thumb rest. Sure. So I thought we'll go with the five string with IC, you know. Yeah. Try that for a while. And then, that was good for some things. I, I really liked it for. Um, I was in a guitar trio, yeah, right. so I could play voicings and things while while he was soloing. I, I really liked it for that, but I I annoyed myself by playing on the upper C string all the time. <laughs> yeah. Every time I went for a solo, I'd go there, and so many people seemed to, and it was sort of I it irritated me because when I listened back to it, I actually didn't like the tone as much as I liked the tone. In the heart of this bass. Yeah, right. So, um, and also every other guy in the band is soloing in that register anyway. Yeah. Um, so there is something to be said for if you're going to solo on the bass, you know, like playing to the bass's strengths, mm -hmm. so to speak, or, or mm. making the most of its unique mm. um, features in, in a way. Yeah. You know. I, don't, I certainly don't beat any drum for four string, is the thing, you know. Yeah. I really don't. I think it's all beautiful if you can make music out of it. Mm. But um, yeah, that's just been my my trip, you know, sort of uh, 10 years out, well, 40, 40 plus years of playing, 10 years of it away from the four string. Yeah. And so were you get, getting lessons at school kind of thing? Or was it no, just I'm, I'm self-taught. Transcribing records and stuff? Uh, yeah, I, tra I left school when I was 15 and moved out of home, lived by myself when I was 15. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty young. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't. I actually didn't even realise how young that was until my eldest son turned fifteen, and then I thought, man, I was living by myself in Paddington at his age, you know. Wow. But um, but I practiced, just practiced a real lot, and transcribed a lot. Um, yeah, I was mad, mad at practicing. I was, I was on the job. And you, you could read and, and read and write music, or no? I taught myself how to do that. I taught. I'm pretty much completely self-taught. Yeah. I had two lessons. Uh, in 1987, funnily enough, when I went to go to Six String, I went to Los Angeles to pick it up from Michael Tobias in Los Angeles. Cool. Because actually at the time it was cheaper to get an air ticket and bring it, rather than pay the import tax on it, which was like 48% or something. It was ridiculous. So I went there to basically pick up the bass, and I organised a lesson with John Patitucci and a lesson with Jeff Berlin. Wow. The day after each other. Wow. So they're the only two lessons I've ever 
paid, you know, like official kind of lessons. Yeah, right. Well, that, that was interesting. If, if, if you're all going to have two lessons, then that's... Yeah, they, was, they were there and they were sort of, at the time, um, um, Jeff Berlin had fairly recently done that Road Games album with Alan Holdsworth. Okay. And I thought that was a bit new, a bit different. And Batatucci had the six string, of course, so I figured I could pick something up there, you know. Yeah. So that was kind of interesting. But other than that, man, I'm just self-taught, you know. And, or, or, I mean, I had a lot of friends that, that picked up different things and they showed me. Yeah. They showed me stuff, so I just gleaned from everywhere. You yeah, know. and playing, playing with other people as well. Yeah. Man, yeah. That. So were you kind of right into the, the gigs at, at kind of 16, 17, or? I, I, I wasn't gigging. I did my first gig when I was 17, and then it really it started when I was 18 to be a bit more steady. Yeah. And I started to get some gigs. And then really quite rapidly, within about two or three years, I was sort of playing with the the best jazz and, and fusion-y kind of guys around, you know, so I kind of was, you know, I was fortunate a few people really kind of took me under their wing and into yeah. their bands and I guess they could see some potential. And so that was really a nice thing. And so, yeah, I, yeah. well, I had a band, I formed my own band when I was 18, that was 1978, and I've had a band ever since. Okay. So this year actually marks 40 years that I've never not had a band, my own band, you know. Wow. So, um, and I've put my 12 albums out of my stuff over that period. Yeah. Everything from solo bass albums to nine-piece to quartets, quintets, so yeah. to different framing it in different ways, you know. So you've always been almost equally drawn to composing as you have yeah. to, to just, just playing, you yeah. know what I mean? They, go, they really go hand in hand for me. Sure. Um, and they always have, I think. Yeah. And now, now I, I don't practice scales and things like that so much, but I just try to uh, um, improvise and then record it and then pick things out and use that as composition. Well, yeah, just a little nugget here and there, you know. Yeah, so listening back to it, it's a yeah. good year and going down. Yeah. Really interesting. That's what Joe Zarnold does. That's how Joe Zarnold writes, just improvises and then takes out some juicy things and sort of writes around that, right. or writes around something that he improvised. And pretty much always on the on the bass for it. Sometimes on the piano, like on the bass, I like writing on the bass because even if I get the piano plays to, or horns or whatever to flesh out the chords later, the guts of it, and everything is right there. Sure. I just kind of did a thing yesterday. Yesterday, I was like, very simple. But if you flesh those chords, I'm just using three note voicing. Yeah. If you flesh those out, it's quite rich. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's like you know, being able to foresee that yeah. and be cool with that. Yeah. I'm kind of the same. I write a lot of. Just three chord voicing and stuff. Yeah. And then you take it to the band and the guitar boy goes, there should probably be a sharp level. Yeah, like, cool. And that's, yeah. And it's kind of, um, and actually I really love those kind of three note voicing things too because it means that you can play more notes against it. Yeah. A lot of things. Everything has yeah. more, more weight. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I do write from the bass a lot, but I, I use the keyboard too just when there's something that I can't quite hear properly on the bass or I want a specifically big voicing or something. Yeah, mm. yeah. And do you reckon, like, when you were kind of starting out, 16, 17, 18, 19, um, what, what, what was your kind of approach to developing your 
facility? Was it just through learning repertoire, or was there kind of specific stuff that you would go through to try and expand your? Yeah. At, f um, at first, at first it was um, just trying to cop what people were doing on records, right. um, and not really having the knowledge of what was happening, whether it was a sharp nine or a minor third or what. Yeah. And then I bought a book called Scales for Jazz Improvisation by a guy called Dan Hurley, and it just had all the all the different uh, chord scales. Yeah, like the major scale and its modes and harmonic minor, melodic minor, diminished scales, pentatonics, yeah. whole tone, the whole gamut, you know. And it said what what kind of chords those went with, and mm -hmm. and, and picking out arpeggio tones, you know, thinking one, three, five, seven, nine, eleven, thirteen, you know. Yeah. Rather than just thinking up the scale. And I did a lot of breaking scales up in different ways, like thinking of major evens, say C major, something like even like this. That's all C major. Yeah, right. Or, or breaking them up in this way. Um, so so it's, it's all exactly in C major, but it just sort of breaks them up in different ways so you can sort of break your lines up. Different note It doesn't sound like you're sort of doing that all the time or something. Yeah, because I guess with the, with the bass being so pattern-centric, yeah. is that we we tend to stick to the patterns that we know and yeah. if it's difficult to follow, like on the piano you can play any note. Yeah, you, know, it's, you can. It's not hard to play this note and that note at the same time. On the piano, on the piano it's piano. probably hard to do something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, so to see on the piano, you can see all the notes laid out in front yeah. of you. So it's not quite so. It's only one place. You get <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you uh, obviously transcribing some some Jackal stuff and, mm. um, and some Anthony Jackson. Some Anthony. Um, some Alfonso. Right. So weather report stuff. Yeah, weather report. Pretty heavily. Um, Jeff, some Jeff Berlin things. Yeah. Uh, Doug Rouch. Do you know Doug Rouch? He's an amazing player. He died early. He died when he was 28. I think he had heroin over there. But he did an album with Billy Cobham called Life and Times, and another album with Lenny White called Venusian Summer. I think they're the best examples of his thing. But he was coming up at the same time as, as Jaco and Stanley, you know. Right. But he had a really, a thing that was really his own. In a way, I mean, it's an oversimplification, but you could his thing was almost right right down the line between Jacob and Stanley actually, but but his own completely. You know? Right. So I was really into him. He was kind of cool. And Eddie Gomez, I transcribed quite a lot, Steve okay. Swallow. Okay. And then I transcribed quite a lot of um, Jan Hammer's mood bass All right. kind of approach and um, and Zonal's left hand stuff, like Zonal's yeah. really got a way of uh, playing particularly pentatonic stuff actually in the in the left hand. Yeah. Like this kind of uh, this is like zonal bass like um Some kind of arpeggiator on, or no, it's just the way Joe moves. Yeah, right. But he might. 
I know he had a, an inverted keyboard, so I went back the other way. So I only C and F sharp were the same. Because that's the exact middle of the major scale. So B would have been C sharp. Wow. So, and that's how he wrote the melody for um, Black Market on that inverted keyboard. That's why it sounds, it's pentatonic, but it sounds so bizarre. So it may have been that, I'm not 100% sure whether his bass thing was inverted either, but he plays like different, you know, things differently. Yeah. So I copped a lot of, a lot of Joe's sort of ways of thinking about yeah. bass too. Yeah. It's slightly different than a bass guitar player would. Yeah. Um, and then, so you're, kind of, you're getting your, getting your shit together essentially for that period of time. Did you, you've always just stayed in Sydney or I mean, did you ever think about doing the LA thing? Oh yeah, I was over there quite a lot and, uh, and uh, I got to, um, I played with Billy Cobham here. Um, in 1990, okay. and then I went to um, Los Angeles the following year. We ended up doing some gigs with Chick Corea as well. This was the time Patitucci was in his band, but it was just these other gigs that Chick had organised with. There was Tim, Tommy Brackline on the drums, he's amazing, and the trumpeter Mark Isham. And um, so I ended up doing a handful of gigs with, with Chick as well, which was That's amazing. I mean, the Betty Cobham and him were, were heroes, you know, when I was yeah. 15, 16. So that was, it was good to go over there and experience that. And it was good to go over there, even outside of that, just to see uh, the players that I had on records. Yeah. Jimmy Johnson in Berlin and other, or other people that anyone I could sort of see. Really. Um, and just hear, hear them live and doing their thing live and hearing how, you know, maybe maybe they don't always play as good as all the records, you know. But that, that was sort of good to... Uh, Seeing that they're human after all. Yeah, yeah, and knock down walls that, that of course are self-built, but just to, that was a really nice thing to realise, you know. Mm. And I was actually in the process of thinking to live there. Well, I was in and out, I was there for the best part of three years or what, I was in and out there. Okay. And, uh, and I, then I kind of decided that um, that we were having, I was having my oldest children at the time, and I thought, I don't, I don't really want to be here. I actually really don't like this place very much. Yeah, yeah, I don't really like it very much. And um, so I made the decision that I'm going to live in Australia. Yeah. And it, and if anything's going to happen off of these shores, then great. If it doesn't, it's cool. I'll just play what I want anyway. Mm. There's an, there's enough amazing musicians here to yeah you know absolutely so it's so yeah that's really the decision i made but I've, having said that i've gone overseas pretty much every at least once pretty much every year to, for to play in asia or to play in india or to play in um europe or yeah somewhere you know china yeah cool mm. what was it like to to play bass with billy Cobham? it was great i mean when i turned, when I turned up to the first rehearsal and his trumpet was already set up. I was, I was intim intimidated by the kit, you know, by itself. Before, before he even <laughs> walked up. They had a mounted bass drum, you know. But, and um, <laughs> this, this, was, this was double, here in Sydney? This was here in Sydney, yeah, in 1990. And he had a double, you know, the double bass yeah. drums. And, and I was just so used to seeing photos of him, like on the in, in a cover of the Spectrum album, with those Perspex drums. Like, yeah. But once he, once he started playing, it was beautiful, you know. Yeah. Like like playing with any 
great drummer, it just feels nice and, and it was good. And I was so familiar with that music. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't like really well, Yeah, I was wrapping it around. It was those kind of you know big isn't it big one? Yeah. Um, those tunes and Bridgens. Yeah, and Lee Scott, that's him. So beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lee Scott. Mm. Um so that was great playing. Yeah, 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 it's really good. But then making the decision to kind of stay mm. in Australia, mm. in so that'd be kind of early early nineties. Yeah, exactly. Ninety two, ninety three. Yeah. Mm. Um, that would be around about the time you hooked up with Jeff Malia. Would that be right? Mm hmm. That's exactly right. And he built the first six string that I had. But then I went off six string fairly soon after, yeah. and then, then he built me the, the first five string with the IC that I had, which I played for a long time. Yeah. And he's built me the subsequent, I've got two of his four string bass in the moment, and I've been playing those up for the last 22 years, 24 years or whatever it is, yeah. until the last year when I've been back on a Fender jazz mostly. Yeah. I just, something about the throat of the Fender jazz that I, I wanted to hear. This is, this is 60s. Well, this is actually the flea bass. Yeah. But I, I didn't like all that scuffed up thing, you know. I wasn't interested in what that. But I really liked the bass, so I thought, oh well, just get it and give it a go, and get something to go over it in the same kind of colour that it was. Oh, so, so it actually looked wor worse than than this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh man, it was really scuffed up. Well, I can't really call it like road worn. Road yeah, yeah. And so it's got all flea shit all over. So it. is this you? Yeah, that's me. That's okay. just happened in the last that's about you. three months. <laughs> Yeah, but um, yeah, I, I really like it. I, it's a real simple. I, I scrape all that stuff off the back of the neck. I don't oh, like. Yeah, it. Just like yeah. natural. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. So I find that if I sweat, I stick to this. Yep. Cell, what's this stuff called? Polyurethane. Paint. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> clear paint. Yeah, clear paint. Clear shiny paint. So yeah. Yeah. Right. And then, um, like, what what was your kind of path for then? putting out your own albums and stuff like, because back... The first one came out in 86. 86, yeah. so it's pretty early on. Yeah. In your... Yeah, I was 25. Yeah, and you wrote right. and recorded it all here. Yeah, and stuff. I wrote and recorded it all and... You got it released by a, a label? No, I did it by myself and um, just pressed 500 at the time, it was still LPs. Yeah. And... Um, I mean, so that's quite... Even pressed 500 LPs and sold them at the gigs. Yeah, even today, I mean, that's quite you know, mm. um, entrepreneurial yeah. for, for musicians, you know, yeah. we, we kind of have to do that. So in 1986, yeah. they'd just be like, I'm going to do this regardless. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of people doing it. I know a couple that were, yeah. but I don't know, it just seemed like, I didn't even really give it much thought and I didn't even, <laughs> and I didn't even think of myself as entrepreneurial or, yeah. or sort of going home in any way really. I just thought that's what you did. I thought you get an instrument and you learn how to play it and you write music and you, Put it out there for other people to see if they like it. Yeah, and it was it was a very simple viewpoint really, and and I've sort of continued to try to keep it that way. Although most of my albums are released through labels and things, but that one wasn't. Yeah, but I just keep it really simple. I always have a band. I always write music. I put out an album every five years or so. Okay, but then I'm part of a lot of other projects. Like all these are things that I've played on. Yeah, and so I, I sort of have my thing. 
and then I just try to have about two or three other things on the go that are somebody else's original, original project and that they allow me X amount of freedom. Sure. Whilst obviously I'm sure. You still get a vested interest in it. Yeah. I know, well, at most of those I've written for as well, so yeah. I end up writing for a lot of people's things that I'm part of. So I've kept that up, that sort of going as my music, you know, and I've never, and I don't play gigs that I don't want to play. I haven't for about 30 years, and I supplement my that by teaching. Okay. I teach for the conservatorium and the jazz faculty there, and I teach for um, University of New South Wales. Right. And so that, and, and I teach here, you can see them at home. Sure. So that supplements my so you, you, original yeah. music habit. Your <laughs> <laughs> jazz habit. Yeah. yeah. Although, yeah, uh, having some jazz habit, I mean, I played with the Egyptian Oud guy, Joseph Joachos, for three years, and a flamenco band. and So it's it's not all just sort of a, a jazz or fusion thing. I try to place this in other yeah. areas too, but that, that it really suits to it, really works in those areas. Yeah, um, I was speaking to my friend Dan Linders, the bass player from Melbourne, I don't know if you know him, but mm. he, he was mm. curious to find out where your kind of love for flamenco and Spanish music comes from. Probably just, probably just from um, Chick Corea and Paco de Lucia, right. who I really, I really love Paco de Lucia. And then there's just the, um, it's just the aesthetic of it that mm -hmm. sort of grabs me. Um, so I've never been, I've never been particularly into, um, for lack of better words, like a black urban funk type. I dig it, but it yeah. never felt like that you do it. I like a more elastic, different way of kind of a groove that sure. is, a, is coming from a different place. You know? Yeah, yeah. And, and the Spanish thing is more... Yeah, it's a European yeah. thing, I guess. And it's just also just the harmonies that you yeah. use. I just really love the, the sort of... Uh, it's sort of dense. So, just those kind of nice... Yeah, there's a lot of nice sort of things they have going on. And, yeah. You know Carlos Benefit? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, so he was, a, he was another guy that I missed mentioning before. Right. There's a beautiful Chikorea record came out in 1982 called um, Touchstone. Okay. And uh, Carlos Benevent is plays on that. And so does Paco, actually. He's a, he was a peak player. Uh, he was, yeah, yeah. He was, yeah. That's right. But he, um, I don't know, somehow we didn't hear it. It didn't sound too clean. Sure, like, like Steve Swallow. You know, yeah, yeah, or Bobby Vega. Well, probably you, you can you can hear the pick, pick. Yeah, yeah true but yeah it's part of his vibe isn't it definitely yeah um has, and have you had like a an indian phase as well no. so to speak no i haven't i haven't been to the class i haven't been because because i knew i knew <laughs> i know that i don't have the discipline to like move to spain and really start you know i just want to i just want to sort of hear it the way i hear it yeah and pick it out and use it in my part so to speak sure i with indian music i think it never works just to skim off the top of that one, I think. Sure. Or maybe not never, but rarely works. Yeah. And I just wouldn't feel... Because there's such a kind of structure. It's such a, oh, it's such a, it's a whole lifetime of yeah. stuff. Yeah. And um, for some reason that's, uh, yeah. I, I love listening to it occasionally, but uh, 
Yeah, I don't think I can do it much justice. <laughs> I couldn't find a place for it in my thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. But I have some friends that, have, that do, and they, it really works for them. It really looks beautifully. But, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've kind of um, lived through a lot of, you know, big kind of moments in music mm. history in terms of, you know, artists and yeah. bands, and also the, the way the industry yeah. works and shifts. I mean, what what are some of the things in the last, like, say, th thirty years that you reckon have been super influential in f for you, but also maybe for for the bass and mm. and how we how we view music in mm. general? Well, well, having been born in nineteen sixty, yeah, the, the the Beatles were there, in, and I was in England, yeah. So the omnipresent through well, the first ten years of my life, pretty much, so that obviously huge and huge for everywhere and yeah and then uh, and then I suppose only being 15 when the bass started to really obviously Jameson had happened and that was amazing but I didn't get into him until sure. you know, retrospectively you know well he probably wasn't even that <laughs> much of a thing until no although I had heard him a lot because yeah the black music was huge in England you know yeah, yeah. Know, sure. Motown was yeah, yeah. it's mega so I'd heard it all but I didn't I didn't know obviously who it was but and I didn't have a bass guitar, but when when Stanley and um, and Joko and those guys arrived, that was exciting to be 15 and yeah. to see this thing growing and to be attracted to that and and uh, to I, I realised early, even though I had a, I have and still have a lot to learn, that my physical facility on the instrument happened pretty quickly. Actually, mm. it's quite easy for me to get around yeah. the instrument. I mean. Just a quick side note, you do have quite long fingers. Yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> like yeah. Jacko. Yeah. And like Stanley. Well, actually, when I met Jacko uh, in 1978, um, he did that thing. Yeah. Yeah, he, this guy introduced him to me, and that was sort of it, you know. Because he was actually, he was actually, the guy that was driving them around was a bass player, yeah. And so he introduced me to Jacko at the uh, Mantua Room Club. So I got to meet him, this was great, you know. And then I just sort of left because I didn't want to start gushing, you know. Yeah. And went home feeling really happy, you know. <laughs> but yeah, the hands were, his hands were exactly that size, actually. Yeah, so that was a, and you know, and the Defender Jazz neck, it's, it's yeah. very small. So there's probably something in that with the yeah, ease, of, ease of getting around, I think. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, just so, yeah, so you realised that you're, you're... I realised that I could... Well, I fell in love with it. Right. I just fell in love with it, you yeah. know. Um, and it, it was quite, it was quite quickly that I fell in love with it, you know. It started out, oh, oh, what's this? And then within a couple of months, I was obsessed, you know. Yeah. And, and, and still kind of am. Evidently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's still kind of am. I still practice in here quite a, quite yeah. a bit, you know. Yeah. It's all, I mean, obviously Jacko, you know, changed the face of mm. the bases, you know, and, and Stanley. Yeah. As well. There's, yeah. There's, probably, there's probably a few more that's sprung up. Uh, around that time, like I guess Gary Willis would be coming on the scene. He was a little later, but yeah, Gary's definitely. I mean, he doesn't sound. He sounds like Gary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Marcus, perhaps. Yeah, they're all a little later. Right. But and Victor Bailey too. Victor, he was a little later. He's born the same year as me. Mm. But um, he he had a thing that was was different. Totally. It's amazing yeah. that peppery sound that he pulls mm. out of whatever instrument he's playing. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, and Doug Rouch, the guy I mentioned before, and and then there was Will Lee. 
course. There are a few other, maybe, yeah, I can think of others that are probably a little bit more obscure. But sure, yeah. But there were, it was definitely, they were growing up out of the ground, so that was a really inspiring time. And also, to come back to your question, what was, what was happening, what was good about music at various points is yeah. that record companies were throwing a lot of money at uh, instrumentalists wanting to make records. Like, yeah. Stanley Clark record would have like the London Symphony Orchestra on it or something. It's like, man, there's no way that is going to happen now. This is true. Oh, I wouldn't like to say no way, but you know what I mean? Yeah. They're not exactly throwing Symphony Orchestra. Unless you like Snarky Poppy or whatever. Well, which yeah. is kind of, yeah. in a way, self, a lot of it is self-funded, mm. but you know, yeah, mm. the record companies, a few that do exist, mm. they're not really going to be. They're not going to give quarter of a million dollar budgets. <laughs> Which is what they were were giving yeah. to to some of those bands. Yeah. So consequently, they were able to make these beautiful albums, you know. And yeah. So that that was good. And it, it got quite Sydney, I've, I've, because I've always essentially been based here. Mm. It's gone up and down a little over the years, but I don't know, man. I, I somehow always just keep doing what I'm doing, doing anyway. Yeah. I don't, I don't take much too much notice of it. Yeah, I was thinking that probably hasn't probably hasn't affected you too much because, like you say, you just you just, just do what I'm doing. Just do what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. Self-funding albums and yeah, part of just original music. Yeah. And how did you get into the the, the teaching thing? Well, I've been doing it. I've been doing it since I was about twenty-five. Just people would ask occasionally, you know, about a gig or something, and I started doing that and. I don't think I was naturally a very good teacher. I, all I could show really was what I had done for myself and what sure. I worked on. Um, so it was mostly it was mostly sort of private teaching for yeah. quite a long time, and then and then I was the first actually the first bass teacher at the Australian Institute of Music here. And that was in '92, and I wrote the original bass curriculum for that. But I only stayed a year. I didn't really like it very much. And then many years later, I started teaching for UNSW and for um, the con here at the Conservatorium. And I, I re I, the older I get, the more I like it. Sure. Yeah. And the more I sort of, and over that period from over that 25, 28 years or whatever it is, um, I've come to uh, take it more, to care about it more and more. You know. Sure. Yeah. And care about the person that's in front of me. And yeah. Because obviously, a lot of my students now are younger than my. Oldest kids, right, yeah. you know, see them as you know this person out in the world with a bass guitar, sort of trying to impose it on a hostile world. Yeah, you know, it's quite a, quite a fragile place, really. And you've got a responsibility. Yeah, I try to sort of say, okay, who's this person in front of me, and if I can help them, what way can I help them? And uh, yeah, and I really like that. I, I dig it. You know, it's I mean, it's so much more rewarding to me anyway than going and playing a gig playing music that I don't like, to people that don't care, like wearing clothes that I would never wear. <laughs> I'd much rather a student walk out and their eyes are a bit shiny from having a penny hand dropped, you know, yeah. and that, that's really rewarding, so. Absolutely. Yeah, so I, I, I really like teaching and uh, more and more so, yeah. Yeah, do you have like a or it's just kind of like everybody you kind of treat differently. I, I treat everyone a bit differently, but then I have fixed things that I worked on. I, the first thing I, I really try to focus on is um, knowing the neck, because I just find so many people don't really know the neck. 
and, and often people that have been playing for, you know, maybe 10, 15 years or something, yeah. they come in and, and go, oh, play a C sharp on the D string and they've got, you know, sort of, uh, uh, and it takes yeah, yeah, well, any, any, yeah, oh, the octave of that, and then, yeah. or something, and just sort of knowing the neck really well. And then depending on what kind of music they're into, you know, I'll, I'll get into sort of know, getting to them really knowing what the relationships are of notes to a root note, you know. Understanding um, and, and Yeah, what's a 13th, what's a sharp 11, what's a sharp 5, what's, sure. a, what's the minor third, what's the second triad of that. Yeah. And just really getting to know that. Yeah. If they're not really, some of them, that's too steep a place to go and I just sort of, I just do whatever I think is going to help them yeah. fall in love with their instrument more and want to yeah. know more and then maybe pull out some other stuff a bit later. Yeah, because as a teacher, you know, you can, maybe the best thing to do is just inspire. Yeah. Instead of go, you should yeah. do this. Yeah, I know? think so. I, 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 that's, I like you say everybody's different. So. Yeah, everybody's different. And I, I do have, I, got folders full of exercises and things like that that I've written down over the years so I, I yeah. can pull any of those out and do you that. You ever thought about that. formalizing it in a Steve Hunter Facebook? I, I have but then I think oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> there's so many of them out there you know. There are. And um, yeah and also and it seems to me that the production values of, of um, like your thing's really well presented online I thought I had a look and just to, it's got to be presented well and all that stuff. And yeah. I just I'm such a technophobe. Right. And yeah, people expect yeah, present, really good like, presentation yeah. and production. Because you see, they pull out the camera in your iPhone now. It's like yeah, better than SLRs from like ten years ago. Yeah. So okay. so I have I have thought about it, but then yeah, I I haven't uh, yeah haven't done anything about it. Yeah. So you never done like a Skype lesson or anything like that. I have done a Skype lesson. Yeah. yeah. I have done one Skype lesson. Yeah, which was cool, it went well. Yeah. But I'm, my oldest son lives in Los Angeles, so I Skyped with him. Right. So I was sort of wasn't too scared of Skype, you know. <laughs> yeah. That was about my yeah. sort of limit. Yeah. No. So I have done I have done that, but um sure. I used to write columns for a couple of Australian uh, music magazines for years. Um, there was a magazine called Sonics that went for a, a long time. I wrote for that for seven years. And there's an Australian music teacher magazine. Right. These were like in the 80, late 80s, early 90s. Interesting. So that sort of, was, and that used to, it was interesting how far that would reach all around the country, you know, before the internet was there. So it was interesting. Yeah, street press was a rock press, mm. was definitely much bigger. Yeah. Bigger deal. Yeah. Were you a, a base player magazine purchaser? Occasionally. I, I yeah. didn't have a subscription, yeah. but I, I did buy quite a lot of them over the years, yeah. Yeah, because for me that, I wanted, that was how I learned all about yeah. the bass players and yeah. read a thing and go, oh, maybe I'll go and check this guy out and yeah. buy the CD and then go, oh, yeah. don't like it. <laughs> Whereas yeah. nowadays you just go, who's this guy? I've got the Paul McCartney issue there and there's a review of one of my albums in there, 1994. So I've kept, I've kept that one. Cool. Yeah, which yeah. is kind of cool to hear on the McCartney issue. Good review. Um, yeah, it was a great review. Yeah, it's really nice. It was a solo bass album that I did in 94. Right. And uh, this was the only one I knew about. Well, actually, the only other one I knew about that time was Jonas Helborg's acoustic solo bass guitar album. But it was the only electric bass guitar album solo bass that I knew at the time. And um, yeah, I think we've got great reviews, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's quite, quite a brave. Yeah. Thing do. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's pretty exposing. Yeah. You yeah. probably learned a lot about yourself. Yeah. And it was just something, so like a lot of the music that I played up to that point, up to 94, had been pretty in your face kind of fusion, you know, it was, it was more like rock jazz. Yeah. And so that solo bass album was just very, there's no over chops things on it at all. It's, it's very melodic and pretty and sort of, yeah. Yeah. And so I wanted to do something that side of the thing too, you know. And then after that, even the band projects became more, sort of swapped around a little bit more uh, to jazz rock, if you like. You know, the, yeah. they became a little bit more, for lack of a better word, organic in the thing. Dynamics. Yeah, dynamics and a bit, a little more open, a bit less riff based. A bit less 21 year old, a bit more. A bit more harmonic movement, maybe. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah, I guess so, yeah. Yeah. Because it's good, I mean, less. Yeah, because you you kind of done that and you get all yeah, that. Yeah, I had done that and I've been acknowledged for it. Yeah, and I think that's that, that's a really important thing actually. I noticed that with some other bass players that get around the instrument a lot, if they haven't really been acknowledged for it much, they just keep doing it. And it's really important. It's a really important thing I think for it. because you work so hard on all this shit getting around the instrument. Yeah, and it, and it's natural to sort of want somebody to go, yeah, man, that was yeah. And, yeah. and after a little bit of that, it's great. Then you can sort of edit it back and only pull that out if you know and then and you start thinking more melodically and all that kind of thing. It's, yeah. I think is what happens. Yeah. But, if, but if you don't get that yeah, snap, a, snap of approval, I think so. there's always going to be that element of it yeah. in, in you. I think so. And I, and I think it's similar with compositions too, like uh, putting stuff out. Like I, have, I have a couple of friends who have written maybe a dozen tunes, and really good tunes, great tunes, yeah. but they've been playing those exact same tunes for 25 years because they've never recorded it and just got it out of the way and allowed them to then move on, you know. That's interesting. I don't know if I could do that. <laughs> I would kind of have to get it out there and move on. Yeah, me too. Yeah, document it so that you can Yeah. take that next thing. Um, and you're saying about um, students coming in and not really knowing the neck. What, what are some other maybe fundamental issues you see with, with your with baseballers and students these days? Um, well, it, it, again, it's knowing the neck, but it's knowing the neck in different ways. Like to think of, say, a C major scale, like playing it, say, in a regular position, um, and then play, start on the little finger, and then start on that finger. Yeah. So that everything's so you sort of can come at it from any yeah. angle. Yeah. Doing those kind of things is really helpful. Um, yes, yeah, seeing seeing th the same thing from a different perspective. Yeah. 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 Um, that's one thing I guess, and another is just. Uh, do you have any, do you have any um, processes for working on time? Well, I just I've got a rhythm box on there. Yeah. And I play with it and uh, I concentrate on where the time is and um, but if you wanted to kind of imbue that onto a student like if you go okay your time your time is not quite right I, I usually try to get them to hear a, a subdivision sure. so if it's if it's going uh, I try to get them to even if you're not playing 16th to hear sure. just so they're feeling 
a subdivision or an eighth or a tip of whatever the group sort of is and um, get them to sort of to really try to uh, embody that time feel yeah and uh, imagine themselves dancing if they don't want to get up and dance <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know yeah subdivisions like real deep understanding of subdivisions I think has been key to mm. To kind of being sure about time as opposed to mm. approximating. Because, mm. you know, it's, it's, I, I, for whatever reason, I struggled with the ah, the last 16th was always the hardest one for me to right. get in the right place, you mm. know. And um, I found this thing called a rhythm ruler. Was so that was that a 16th a, if you were going to be playing the one, one or? E, one E and A. Yeah, I know, but on the end of that bar, was that? Always the same, like if you, as though you were landing on the next one, da 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 ba, or if you'd if you left the next eighth off of the next bar, was it the same? Like you know, it was. Ah, uh, so it would be last sixteenth and then a rest. Yeah, right. Yeah. So right. there's no. Yeah, I gotcha. There's no da reference point. Yeah, it's not da da. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, yeah. I see. So yeah. that's generally that's kind of my one of my weaknesses. I'm always kind of trying to work on and stuff like that. Mm. But I found the the, like a visual representation of it because mm. I did a lot of I do a lot of um, production stuff and I, I can kind of visualize like the MIDI map the grid the grid I can visualize yeah. the grid and, and that kind of helps with me know where it should be right um, and then so so with students I have this thing called a rhythm ruler which is one E and a two E and mm -hmm. so you can so you can see so you can see the subdivisions and you can mark right them. okay you play on one and you play on a yeah the, yeah. yeah, you know, and that, yeah. that seems to help a kind of visual representation yeah. rhythm. Because otherwise, it, the written music, the, it, on first impressions, it doesn't really tell you the relationship of time between all the notes. Mm -hmm. You know, so people, I think people struggle right. reading notes, knowing, yeah, right. knowing where it should be in the bar. Yeah, I see. Yeah. You know? I sometimes do a thing where I just break it down into, in, in a way, it's a similar thing because it's breaking down to, you know, take a simple bass line and say something like this. to maybe vary those up a bit, use two different um, things in playing a simple bass line like that, just yeah. so they can really hear uh, 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 hear where the bond is, hear where the beat is. The relationship between the yeah. subdivision and, and, the, and the pulse. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And I think some of that stuff too is just not being frantic, you know, just sort of with time, like mm. to, not, you know, to not be too frantic about it and just to really yeah, you heard that expression, the fifth member of the quartet, like the sort of the ear that hovers above the quartet, you know, sure. sort of sort of try and be that. So you really where well, you're really hearing your your place in amongst what the other yeah. players are doing rather than going, you know, and sort of being too introverted into the instrument, I think. Yeah, don't be so blinking. Yeah, you've got to sort of have not necessarily eyeballing everybody, of course, but just sort of aware of everybody and when, where, what the bass player who happens to be you is doing. Yeah. You know, sort of an exterior point of view about it a little bit. Sure. Yeah. No, I think it's good. Definitely, I think so. Because mm. you, 
bass players who can do that, I think, generally have um, maybe a better tone in, in, in the settings as well, because right. they can hear where they're sitting sonically, right. as well as rhythmically and, and harmonically and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think tone is an important thing mm. for us to think about. Um, and so what, what would be kind of a, a, an approach for you in terms of soloing? I've got, I've got a lot of different ways of looking at it. I've yeah. studied a lot of stuff uh, as an educator from Boston called Charlie Bernakis. Yeah. And I've studied a lot of his stuff, chromatic approaches to to playing, you know, chromatic approaches to uh, arpeggios and, and triads and things like that. Sort so of give a sort of more spice. Kind of thing, like yeah. One below, one above. Kind yeah, of exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So what, like what, in your head, what, what are your harmonic reference points that that is, that, that would be hooked on, if you know what I mean? Mm. Well, there, there I was just sort of, I was playing a lot of sort of an, an altered sound. But actually here, a, a cool thing, this, this is an idea that works pretty well. You remember we were talking before about for the familiar shapes of the pentatonic, the boxes. Yeah, yeah. This is a cool thing you, you can do just to, and use what we know. Like if you take a C major pentatonic set like that, yeah. and do sort of modes of that, up to the A minor pentatonic, but then approach them into the, in, into the C, into the D, and you're always thinking of your chromatic on the up, into C, into D, into E, into G, into A, into C, reverse. And then your next one, that little box, yeah. becomes this. And then that becomes... And that becomes that. Yeah. A minor pentatonic becomes that. Yeah. So right there you end up with a lot of stuff we already know, but just sort of just stepping yeah. And you can make make that stuff quite beatboxy too, like Thank you. 
Some other stuff. Yes. Because it, it, it's sort of, even if you're thinking about as pentatonic, let's say, uh, A minor pentatonic, yeah. um, as soon as you put some of those in, that's sort of diminished movement. keep the tonality you know so for, and I, I like playing on changes so mm -hmm. for playing on changes I like I still really like to do that thing of outlining the not just shipping up and down the scales that I know will work but targeting in on on chord tones and extension yeah. tones you know a bit That's specific tension and release yes. yeah yeah so I work on that quite a bit yeah would you say there's some like maybe some key solos that you've transcribed where it keeps coming back and mm. playing maybe some chicory, well, there, there are things that I've transcribed that are not the whole solo, like it might be sort of an eight bar of a chicory song, and I go, ah, oh, that eight bars, what's he doing, what's the, what's the device? Yeah. So then I'll take that and I'll invert it and do it upside down and back to front and, and make it my own sort of thing. Yeah. Know? But the, I suppose the jacker ones, you know, um, used to be a cha-cha, it's my favourite jacker solo actually. I think that's got some really interesting. Mm. I just I, I copped onto a couple of little things he was doing, really cunningly using open strings. You know, like like for example, something like this. So mm -hmm. using the open G, open G and D. Okay. It's an A minor chord. That's it. Used to be a cha-cha. Does that? And so how the, how how did you do yeah. that? Like I could see the board, you know. And I couldn't in my mind. And I couldn't. So I, I I sort of worked on some things like that, like where you could where you maybe would be playing. Uh, let's say D minor here, and then jump back to here or something. Actually, not even moving quickly. If you think how 
the, the table. So those open strings get... There's an open string, and, and I sort of try to be aware of, is the open string in the chord? Yeah. Or is the open string, do I want to hit the open string on an offbeat? And then resolve. Yeah. So if it's a D flat chord, it might go open D... Oh, sorry. So using using sort of little devices like that yeah, to move anything but sort of there was a stage where I just tried everything but doing this or any movement such as that. I just wanted to completely get away from boxes and 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 just sort of open the neck up. Uh, yeah, just to, to make me play something, hear something else, play something else. And then I went back to and added all that chromatic stuff to the boxes and, and, and made good use of them. Yeah. Like, why deny them? It's, it was ridiculous. But, and have you, ever, have you ever kind of come up against that that mindset of, you know, the bass player is just for holding down your groove and playing, yeah. up, playing above the 12th fret, you know, yeah. 20, 20 bucks, stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. Are you, like, would you I be, just, I, you, I, the, uh, I just sort of. I mean, I mean, I just sort of... It, yeah, it's obviously a ridiculous... Well, yeah, it's just a... Well, it's a, it's a false dichotomy. It's a false dichotomy. It's like, are you a solo guy or are you going to just pin down the groove? Yeah. It's just so dumb. Yeah. Really. Yeah. So I just don't even bother with it, you know? It's like, a solo, you know, soloing, you've got to be keeping a groove too, otherwise it's rubbish. Sure. It's time is time, and time is time. yeah. If the song serves the song, and if it requires you to do that, great. Yeah. If it gives you some space to create and do some yeah. more artifacty stuff, beautiful. And yeah, and, and I'm guessing you know you can get it off just as much on playing that as you can from exploring. Yeah. You know, definitely. Because it's about your relationship with the musicians and music. Right yeah, now, yeah, definitely. Although I, I would definitely admit to a time where that wasn't the case too. Sure. Yeah. You know. Yeah. The struggle. <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it my turn yet? Is it my turn? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was definitely you know I did I didn't always have that that kind of maturity that some actually some young guys do have. I, I, I sort of had to <laughs> beat my brains out first and then yeah. grow into just serving the music and just relax on it. And, <laughs> just chill out. Yeah, yeah, just chill out. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, Manuel. I don't want to keep you too much longer. All right. Um, nice great. chatting. Yeah, nice yeah, chatting. Thanks man. for having me. No problem. Um, Steve Hunter, everybody.
Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Steve there. Um, thank you very much for listening. Um, if you did enjoy it, then I would really appreciate some help with um, getting the word out about this podcast by either leaving a review on iTunes or sharing this on your on your socials, on your on Facebook, etc. It really helps to get the word out and um, and get more bass players and musicians to hear these awesome stories and chats with these um, with these great bass players. So. Any questions, then you can shoot me an email, info at basslessonsmelbourne.com. Um, thanks for listening, and stay tuned for another episode coming soon. Bye.